Welcome, welcome, Steve Dunn Podcast. I am joined today by Newt Thompson. Newt is Director of Legal Affairs at Summit Design and Engineering Services. That's another way of saying he's in-house general counsel. Prior to this position, Newt worked as a litigator in a law firm. So far, so good. Pretty normal career path to be a litigator and then go and work in-house. But Newt Thompson is 28 years old, so he accelerated the timeline a little bit. We thought it would be fun to get together and talk about generations of lawyers and how the practice has changed since I was his age. Hope you enjoy our conversation. So Matt Bales, who's our director of strategic initiatives, friend of mine, colleague of mine, I got to know way back in 15, 16 ish when I was working at General Assembly. And as life happens, everybody moves on, goes about their life. He ends up at Summit through his prior work as a lobbyist for them. And he was, hey, we need an in-house counsel. And uh, I said, Matt, I, good luck. I hope you find one. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, no, like, why don't you, why don't you come over? And I said, what does the job entail? Is we need somebody to run the contracts department. We've got some corporate stuff. And we need somebody to help manage litigation. I said, sounds like a great need for in-house counsel. I hope you find one. And he said, no, apply. And I said, are you sure? I said, he said, yeah. He said, I don't, I know you, I know your reputation for good hard work and you've been practicing. You, you have a law license, come over. I said, well, that's not really how this works. When you say now, to be clear, when you say you've been practicing, <laughs> yeah. you mean like you've been practicing for like a couple, couple of years, yeah. right? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. He said, yeah, but you'll be all right. He said, at least come interview. I said, man, I really, I appreciate the vote of confidence, but I really don't think so. He said, we could at least come talk to our president, come talk to Troy, just meet him. And I said, okay. And that first meeting interview, if you want to call it that, went so well. Our president, Troy Dover, former TDOT, former NCDOT, state guy as well, just one of those people that you want to work with. He was so inspirational. It was such an amazing conversation. I was like, I would be stupid to not take this opportunity. So I took the jump last September and I've loved it so far. Yeah. yeah. Here's the thing, man. You're... We're, this conversation today is about being a new lawyer and what the profession looks like from the perspective of a new lawyer. And you are, compared to me, a new lawyer. You, you are clearly well enough experienced to get the job that you got, but you're 28 years old. You've been out of law school now three years or so. Is that right? Almost yeah. to the day. All right. Almost to the day. Three yeah. years. You graduated in 2020 from Carolina. And... The, the fact of the matter is somebody told me when I was doing a summer internship at Duke Energy, one of the lawyers on that job told me that she felt like she was committing legal malpractice every day for the first five years of her practice. And she told me that. I was glad that she told me that because I've always remembered it. And it took some of the pressure off me when I became a lawyer myself. Now, my experience was I equally unqualified for what I was doing, perhaps, when I was your age, but the reason is because I was in this small law firm where they just threw stuff at me. Like they, I just showed up and they were just like, all right, start handling cases. And I just started handling it. There was no training program. Yeah. They had never hired an associate before. And there were a lot of sleepless nights and a whole lot of stress. But I think what I'm trying to communicate to you is you're going to feel that way anyway. You're going to be unqualified for what you're doing anyway. So you might as well be in a position where you're learning and you're figuring things out. You're forced to 
gain competency. You're going to make mistakes, but most of them aren't going to bankrupt the company. (laughs) Probably. And so I think it's, it's an opportunity and it's exciting. And I hope that you see it that way. I do. And it's looking back, I'm incredibly grateful similarly for my time at Jordan Price because also small firm. Now, Jordan Price is the law firm where you were an associate for the first, is that where you went out of law school? Correct. What kind of work were you doing? Whatever they gave me. Yeah. I, what did it end up being? Mostly civil litigation. We They didn't really do any criminal at all. And the rest of it was a lot of HOA stuff. And then how I came to meet you was through a construction litigation case. A mediation. The way that so many people come to meet me <laughs> through a mediation. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So how many lawyers in that law firm? At the time, probably 15. I would say it ranges 12 to 20, depending on when they... So would you say that you were given, you think, more responsibility from the get-go than some folks in other types of jobs? And even in conversations with my peers, it's abundantly clear that's the case. I think the folks that ended up at the big law firms are doing high-level, high-sophisticated stuff, but they're sending out meeting info. And that's a joke, is I took notes on three calls yesterday and, and billed for all of it, whereas I was managing a caseload of 40 cases plus trying to do my own business development because that's what I wanted to do. It was just a different a different role. I would hear these stories about these folks who went to big law firms that said they wouldn't take a deposition until they were seven years into their practice or something like that. Whereas I'm seven months into my practice and I'm taking the deposition of some, uh, the first deposition I ever took was the CEO of a company in New York. And you better believe that I was sweating bullets i could feel i felt the lawyer on the other side was hazing me like just being like the one of the worst i've ever dealt with yeah i asked the guy to state his name (laughs) i said can you state your name for the record and this guy had the opposing counsel had a little notebook in his hand with a with an objection a full page objection (laughs) and he read that objection into the record after the first like 10 questions that i asked including what is your name and it was all this this is just a fishing expedition this is beyond the boundaries of Rule 26. I was, I could, I will never forget. I could feel my pulse beating against the collar <laughs> of my shirt as I, and finally, after after he read this objection into the record for the, for the tenth time, I finally just said to him, I was like, "You can't object like that. Right. Like, you're, yeah. there's that's not a valid objection <laughs> in a deposition." Yeah. And he backed off, and, and and we went through the rest of it, but. I think in that kind of context, I don't know, man, do you, are you stressed out? Do you have a lot of sleepless nights? Do you worry a lot about stuff? Cause I'm probably going to end up telling you like, don't worry so much. You know what I mean? You probably worry enough to be good. I do. I less than I used to. And I think it's because of the people around me. Again, I think I have great folks that work with me that, that account on me and rely on what I do, but I know they got my back. So I, I feel less stressed than I used to, but definitely those first six months, I remember we, I, st- you know, I, my li- license came, you start before you find out you passed the bar. And there's that, oh man, there's that month and a half oh, of, gosh. hey, hope you passed yeah. in the hallway. Seriously. You know? <laughs> oh, jeez. But I remember the day that we got our results back, literally the next day in the office, one of the partners came in and was like, been waiting for the, been waiting for the good news. Here you go. And it was a small claims case that he had already filed and that he had no intent of doing, but he was like, just have fun with it. And at the time I'm like, oh my, do I, what do I do? I need discovery? A case? There's, yeah. a, there's a trial? What do you mean? What do you mean? And it went fine, right? But that first like sink or swim. Oh, man. <laughs> you know? Dude, I, so I get a phone call from my partner, senior partner, Phil Van Hoy. May he rest in peace. <laughs> 
calls me from his car. It's a Friday afternoon. He's on the way to the beach. It's one o'clock in the afternoon. He's halfway to the beach at this point. Calls me and says, hey, I just heard opposing uh, counsel's down at the courthouse trying to get a temporary restraining order on this non-compete. <laughs> the file is on my desk. Good luck. Go get it. Yeah. Never heard of the case. Never heard of the client. Go in there, start flipping through his notes, and figured out that there was an issue regarding consideration on this non-compete, and I just went down there. And this is the type of thing, though, that I probably wouldn't have chosen for myself. I probably, If you would ask me, like, hey, do you want to be in a situation where you're thrust into these deeply uncomfortable scenarios, I probably would have told you no. But looking back, if you're a quick study and you understand that the problem is not whether you make a mistake ever. The problem is whether you make the same mistake more than once. You know what I mean? As long as you don't make the same mistake like repeatedly and you can learn from your mistakes, then getting thrust into challenging scenarios like that before you're really ready is, I think, ultimately advantageous. I think it toughens you up and it gives you valuable experience. Yeah, and it's easy to say that from the other side of it, I think. What you mean with the benefit of hindsight? Yeah. In retrospect? Yeah. yeah. 100%. Yeah, no. At the time, though, I was super stressed out. I, a lot of sleepless nights, constant grinding strain. No doubt about it. I remember another one where I, the first time you do anything is the first time. That's right. And it was a collections issue. We had three or four cases lined up for summary judgment, one of which was opposed, I think, maybe just one of them. And I had gone down there. Everything was ready to go. I had my orders ready. I was feeling really good. And then the judge goes, how much do you want? I was like, and I don't know why. I froze. I had everything in front of me. And I was like, everyone in here thinks I'm an idiot because I didn't answer that question in, in 10. And no one cared. Right. Everyone else was worried about what they were doing. No, nobody's even listening. <laughs> yeah. Everybody else is bored. <laughs> yeah. But for me, it was it's, it is almost like soul-crushingly embarrassing and for no reason. So to your point, I think... That hyper attention that you feel in the moment, in hindsight, was never really there. And that's what I say. That's what I mean when I say looking back on it. Or maybe once you've gotten through it, it's great. But at the time, it is, you go home thinking about, did I say the right thing? And you have a signed order in your hand. Like it couldn't have gone any better. Oh, yeah. But but you're like, did did I screw something up? (laughs) (laughs) So, what I used to agonize about, and this probably was a good uh, years and years of from when I started was the question whether I was missing something. In fact, I will say this never actually went away because one of the last big cases I worked on as a lawyer before I became a full-time mediator, I remember I kept waiting and I we filed a motion for summary judgment and I the other I was waiting for the other side's response and I was waiting to see if I had missed something. What are they going to hit me with in this response that I hadn't anticipated? And then and the answer was almost always the same. I wasn't missing anything. Almost always. And even when I was 28 years old, that was the case. I was constantly worrying whether I was missing something. And almost never was yeah. I actually missing something. And I think at a certain point, a couple of things happen in your practice as a lawyer. One is, of course, you get some confidence. So the first time is the hardest time. The second time is not nearly as hard as the first time. And then the third time, it's, yeah, all right, I've seen this. What can I learn this time? Yeah, yeah exactly. And then at some point, everything, just about anything becomes routine at some point, right? There's always new wrinkles. Every situation is a little bit different. Every case is a little bit different. 
but you certainly attain confidence through experience. And then I think the other thing that is equally, if not more important, is the development of your own approach and your own style. I think everybody starts basically by imitating what they've observed. So if you're lucky, you have a mentor and you learn by example from watching. I, hell, I learned from my own partners, but I also learned a lot from opposing counsel. The things that I would see people do to me. <laughs> Sometimes people would do stuff to me that I would think, okay, I'm going to file that away. I'm going to use that someday. But then at some point, eventually you begin to realize that you can very much just be yourself yeah. and you can do the things the way that you think is the best. And I think the role that you're in now as general of a company presents some really interesting opportunities for you. One is to learn about all the different, everything in a company runs through legal. So if you are the GC, then you're gonna have your finger on the pulse of all the different parts of the business and you'll get to learn about the business and about the law as it relates to each part of the business. And then the other thing is that you're just going to have the the opportunity to have responsibility for and just get into a mode of just making decisions and understand that they're going to have consequences and some things will work out and some things won't, but the world isn't going to end. You're so right about the learning the business. That's been the biggest side is I knew what North Carolina's anti-indemnity statute said, which is incredibly important in our job. Right? It's in every contract we do. I now know more than I ever wanted to know about all of the states that we work in. It's anti-indemnity right. statute. It's something I never would have bothered to learn. And now it's incredibly consequential. And the other thing that you said I think is really responsive to what I have observed or experienced is the legal touching everything that the company does. I try to hold myself out as the mayor pro tem of Realville in that there are going to be consequences, legal and extra legal, to everything, every decision that the company makes. I don't pretend to have the bandwidth to take in every decision that's going to be made. I, we have policies and procedures in place that are intended to catch those, particularly the very important ones, and I think we do a good job of doing that and vetting those and making at least informed decisions with the available information that we have at the time and the timeline with which we have to make the decision. But... It's so interesting how much legal touches because there are even folks within our company that have higher risk tolerances and lower risk tolerances. And there are some things that I get that I'm like, you didn't need me to check off on this, but I'm glad that you did. And there are some things that are like, you should have told me about this two weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> and so learning the company and the business is great, but you got to learn the people too. You're drinking from a fire hose, as they say. And meanwhile, at the same time, you are 28 years old. You are right on the cusp of Gen Z. You're either the youngest millennial or the oldest Gen Z. Is Depending that, on who you ask. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. So I am 50. I am squarely in the middle of Gen X. So I'm right in right. the heart of it. And I will tell you that every time I read about like Gen Xers or what their stereotype is or whatever, I always look at that and I'm like, yeah, that's spot on. Yeah, that's <laughs> that is me for sure. The thing that I think is most interesting about my generation is that we grew up and lived f full lives. Like we were fully developed brains before the internet. And then, but we're also young enough. So I got my first email address in college and was using email regularly in law school. But at that time, 
only like a third of the students in the law school were using email at all. Mm. And online legal research databases like Lexis and Westlaw existed, but they were new. And my generation is that one that lived in the before times for sure, and but that sort of were early adopters and took on this revolutionary new technology and kind of led the way in terms of its adoption. And it's an interesting place to be, and there's a lot there. I'm curious from your perspective as someone who's 28, who's on the cusp, but whatever these generations mean. I'm not exactly sure if the boundaries between them are particularly meaningful, but I wonder in terms of your own self-identity, the way that you and your colleagues see yourselves, what you observe about yourselves, like how you regard yourself in relation to the generations that came before you. Yeah. So that's interesting that you said the Gen X descriptions fit you perfectly because I've always read the millennial ones and gone, right. So maybe that's indicative of the fact that I am on the edge of it. But that being said, I would say I am more culturally aligned with the millennial generation only because of my individual experiences growing up in the mountains in a rural, largely rural community. We didn't have internet until 04, 05, just because of where we were and the nature of what my parents did. It was not in or considered to be a necessity. And, you know, I probably had my first email address in middle school and didn't, I don't know that it was used all that much then. I actually you think you're behind your peers then. Cause I'm thinking I graduated from college in 95 email, graduated from law school in 98. Email was not widespread at that time, but it certainly like everybody my age was using it. But. Maybe, but again, I was, I don't know. I think everyone at that time, I was a child, right? But I think yeah. everyone at that time was can, trying to figure out when is it appropriate for children to have access. To be online, right? I don't. I don't know that even I would say I was behind as much as it was just a difference in the time. When you say that you identify more with the stereotypical millennial description, what do you mean by that as compared to Gen Z? Like, what do you think those stereotypes are? In the context of technology, I would say the still pre-native, right? I think the generation after me it was there when they got there and they grew up with it. Right. We had to pick it up, right? I, I remember, distinctly remember the cell phone and the evolution of the cell phone. I remember the car phone, the evolution of the car. Like I have yeah. memories of those things and they weren't already there. Whereas I have a much younger sister, 17 years my younger, yeah. 18 years my younger, who iPad is second nature to her. Right. right. So I think from that perspective, that's why I would say that from the technology perspective, but also I think from the life values, cultural values side thing, I think very much self-starter, very much individually motivated uh, and equity oriented. Interesting thing about kids growing up with technology now. I got kids, my kids are 17 and 14 and they obviously have grown up with immersed in technology. Being They've grown up with parents who are always on their phones. You know what I mean? My parents, didn't obviously cell phones didn't even exist until I was near nearly an adult and but one of the things I think is interesting about it is that even though kids are growing up totally swimming in technology all the time I don't think that kids are growing up knowing like how to program computers like right. at all like they just you use an iPhone and an iPad and stuff like that but like when I was growing up if you had if you had a computer in your house which we did you're literally coding, yeah. you know what I mean? You're writing programs and 
troubleshooting stuff. I feel in certain ways, I expected my kids to come along and just blow my mind with their technological capabilities, but I just frankly don't observe that. If there's a problem with the Wi-Fi or something, or if there's any kind of task that needs to be done with the computer, I'm not sure that my kids even could find the file that they just downloaded. You know what I mean? I'm not sure. I just, I don't really know. And I'm not sure how important it is, but I think it's just subverted what my expectations were going to be. That's interesting. And I think that goes back to the more millennial, right? Because I think I have because we grew up in that transitionary stage where computers were a lot more work, for lack of a better phrase, where you had to do a little more legwork. It wasn't just a hyperlink to everything. You have to understand what a domain is to get somewhere. And I think that's probably taken for granted. Yeah. Whereas we're in that, and this gets back to the our original conversation, the ADR conversation of where you start from. And I think culturally recognizing who the client is going to dictate how you start that conversation. And even back to my law firm days, I, if a certain if I wanted a certain partner to read something, the only way that was going to happen was if I printed something off, stapled it, put a sticky note on it right. from me, and put it on his desk. Right. If I sent him an email, he was going to be like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. there, whereas there were other partners of the same demographic, where I would email if I printed something off, they'd be like, "Why are you wasting this paper?" Yeah. Oh, um, that's interesting. So I think having the kind of threshold generational divide to the extent it leaves me wandering in no man's land, has armed me with a jack-of-all, master-of-none type of skill set. When I became a lawyer, one of the things that... This is late 90s, right? So just 98 to 2000, first couple of years in practice. I'm starting at this small law firm, and these guys are pretty traditional lawyers, dispositionally anyway. like They're not cutting-edge, innovative technologists. And they're all, they're a generation above me in terms of, of our age. And I had to really work them over to start using email and to get a website. Like they, they thought that I was some kind of techie nerd <laughs> because I was talking about the need for a law firm to have a website. And it was an evolution and it was a work in progress, but it eventually got done. And, and like, I never dictated. They do you even know what dictating I, is? Again, only because of the one partner. Yeah, that did it. You got yeah. some crusty old guy at the law firm. Refuses. Yeah. yeah, no, I never dictated a single thing, and that seemed to be. And I, frankly, I did my own typing. I did my. I created my own documents. You know, in in word processing programs. We, we even we used Word Perfect at this law That's firm. That's a throwback. Back in the day. Yeah. yeah, but I eventually got them to convert to Word only because. All of our clients used it. <laughs> you were tired of being the guy that got the email that said, can you convert this to oh, WordPerfect? Constantly, yeah. So that's where I was. Like, is there, is there anything like that you're perceiving now that folks who are coming out of law school, folks who are hitting the practice now are looking at, around at the profession and thinking, come on, get with the program? The obvious kind of duh answer, I think there's some teeth to it, is the where do you work question. Right. The yeah. in-office, remote, hybrid now, does your observation on this predate COVID? It does. Okay. Only from a pre-law perspective. I had jobs before law school that were office jobs. Larger, quote-unquote, more progressive, transactional-based work, from my perspective, could be done almost universally remotely. I think you lack a sense of camaraderie and mutual suffering that exists in this profession when you do it that way. And there may be some hangover mental health from that but i would i'd be hard pressed to find a litigation particularly a local litigation practice that you could do remotely you got to go to court 
until judges say you don't. And they just in Mecklenburg County just went all remote for hearings and just that's, a couple months ago. So then in that sense, yeah, what's stopping you from taking your summary judgment hearing from Cabo if the internet's good enough? Right. So I think that's the big one is there are, and I, I don't want to speak for a whole other generation, but there are conversations that I have with younger attorneys and other folks that they don't understand why you would ever want to go to an office. I'm a fan of it in a healthy dose. I think a strict milital regimented you need to be here at eight and you can't leave till six is never healthy and the parking lot watchers were never the best best mentors to have yeah but i think there's a reason they feel that way and i'm always happy to hear them out there's something about tradition first of all i will say i think that the legal profession is more tradition bound than some others right there i think there are industries technology is an obvious one but i think there's other industries where innovation and change is actually valued and the idea being efficiency delivering higher quality services more efficiently and stuff like that is is prime whereas in the legal profession i think due to the nature of the work going slow not making any sudden moves and it, it, the whole idea it may be not to get overly philosophical about it, but this may relate to just the whole idea of precedent and the concept of precedent and the legal traditions that have been handed down literally for thousands of years at this point, informing so much of what we still do that the legal profession is slow to change and slow to adopt new things. And so I think I told you in, in one of our emails prior to today that one of the innovations that was occurring when I was your age, was Casual Friday. Have you, have you heard of Casual Friday? This is the idea that you don't have to wear a suit to work, but only on Friday. And there were firms that adopted Casual Friday. And it was it became like, when I was coming along, it was something that like the hip modern law firms were doing to try to relate to the new generation. Yeah. These Gen Xers that were coming along, they're like, hey, we got Casual Friday. You can wear jeans to the office on Friday. And, but some of the Casual Fridays, like, jeans was too much. Right. You know, it's like khakis, please. Yeah, please but keep, yeah, but that going. was like an innovative idea. And then eventually as time went by, it's get, you're getting to be hard-pressed to find people that are wearing a suit almost ever. And unless you're going to court or something like that. It, it, that's interesting. I, so I want to ask you a question as a, as a Gen X lawyer. I heard a rumor, and it is strictly a rumor, I was talking to some colleagues about this, that there were some firms that used to make you pay to participate in Casual Friday. Is that a thing? That's that's ringing a bell. What did they do with the money? Yeah, I think it was like a donation. It was like a charitable Yeah, thing. I think, yeah, that's, it's, my kid's school does that now. My kid, my son goes to a Catholic school and they'll have that every now and then like where you don't have to wear the school uniform, but you got to donate a dollar to the, right. whatever the fund is. That does ring a bell. Yeah. What I remember is that there's a law firm in town that it was considered a bridge too far to wear a blue dress shirt. It it had to be a white dress shirt. And if you wore a blue dress mm. shirt, like, comment, you'd hear about it. So we've come a yeah. little ways. Well, in regard to that, but okay here's the thing like we we take it for granted now we, we look back at the olden times and we laugh about those things question is and i think it's an open question in many ways is it better you know is, when things change 
is it better? And you can, I think in the same way that we assume that it is, that same assumption is what people who are resisting change is, that it's the same assumption that they're making in resisting the change, which Mm -hmm. is that the way we're currently doing it is better. And I think that this question about remote work, I can tell you, I've seen it profoundly in my own work as a mediator, where prior to COVID, we, I never did a video conference mediation, never heard of Zoom. I'd never heard the, the to me, Zoom was a television show from the 1970s that I watched when I was a kid. Heard of Zoom and went from 0% video mediations to 100% media, video mediations overnight. And the world has changed. And around that conversation, there was a whole lot of assumptions about whether which was better. Is, is this better? Which is better? And a lot of people had a lot of really strong feelings about it, mostly negative. Now you got a lot of folks who think video is better across the board. I got a bunch of clients who will be sitting in Charlotte and do a video conference mediation with me, also sitting in Charlotte. But that, that was a change that was forced. It wouldn't have occurred on its own. And a lot of the the discussion around it was based on the assumption that it wasn't as good. And I think that remote work is like that. I think casual dress is like that. Just the concept of coming in and experiencing that camaraderie and the shared misery and all these things that you described as being the consequences of the working together way of doing it certainly I think falls into the category of pros and cons. There's advantages and disadvantages of either approach, but is one on balance better? That's, That's a good question. much more complicated question. And I, the lawyer answer is, and this is, we had this con we being folks in my firm had this conversation. And I still consider it today. And the answer I think is it depends right from a client's perspective. If we're on the trying not to pay side of a mediation, I think a Zoom mediation is great because six o'clock rolls around, and if they're mediating, if they're joining the Zoom mediation from their house, they're the stress level of I want to get home, I want to get out of here, which I think is part of a mediation in some instances. Is okay, we've suffered through this all day. What's it really going to take? You don't want to go to that next deposition. It's calendared. What's coming up in two weeks? You don't want to do that. What's it going to take? You're, you want to go to what's it going to take? And I think there's some. I think this is not, I'm not a mediator, but I, as a practitioner, I think there's some teeth to being able to lean in on the strained facilities that occurs from an in-person mediation. Depositions way better, right? In person, I would argue. And I've done some remote depositions and it just didn't feel, I, I can't lean in. I can't slide the paper across the table. And there's always a tech issue, something. And that kind of breaks the flow of a deposition. But to that point, I think it depends, is the answer to your question, on balance whether it's better or not, and that is also a pros and cons thing. So I think if you ask, gun to my head, you force me, is remote better? I think it's better as an option. I think we are better as practitioners, I think we are better as consumers that tech exists and that is a viable option. Because otherwise, we're back in a situation where either it's not going to work and the case is not going to get resolved because someone can't be somewhere, or it's going to be a situation where it's prolonged in a way that costs everyone more in both time and money. I wonder if there are things about your generation from a value standpoint that are that you see informing the approach that 
your colleagues are taking as they are beginning their legal careers. And what I'll suggest to you is that when I was your age, it was a pretty new idea for lawyers to the the concept of work life balance was a new idea right? especially as it related to men frankly the idea that male associates might want to spend time with their wife and kids <laughs> was pretty innovative it was liberal <laughs> folks and it was and there was some hostility to it there was a lot of folks who've come up through a different, like we're talking about, with tradition and assumptions about what's better, a lot, a lot of folks feel like, hey, I never saw my kids, and therefore that made me the lawyer that I am, and therefore that everybody else should have to go through that same kind of suffering. A YouTube mentality. It's a very, it's a very powerful mentality, and there were some other things. There were some other things about. The, the frankly, the balance of power between associates and law firms. Like it was for the first time when I was coming up through law school, associates were linking up with each other online and sharing information about salaries and benefits and what it's like to work at a place. Like nowadays, like you can literally, you can go read like reviews yeah. of what it's like to work at a place. You know what I mean? But when I was coming along, it was you, all that information was very new. It was coming out. But it was restricted and like people, you had to be like anonymous people. Like you, you could get fired if you posted the details of your workplace on the internet. But of course, people were doing it anyway. And I just wonder, and it, what happened is I think you had a, a whole generation of people who were a lot more mobile in their jobs. Who just say, you know what, I can, I can make 10000 more dollars at this law firm across the street. I'm going to go do that. That makes a difference to me. And so you saw, and so that culture has changed a whole lot, I think. <laughs> I wonder if there are things like that that you see that you're like that are likely to change in the practice of law as a result of a new generation coming along. It's a great question. I don't think the mobility question is settled. There was advice given to me as a law student by professors and practitioners alike that was you shouldn't have more than two lines on your resume in five years kind of stuff. That's still, I think we're fighting that the work conditions that we talked about in terms of in office or in person. And I think work-life balance is still a hot button issue because, and maybe now it's being framed as the pendulum swings back is work life balance dictated by your lens, right? Is life meaning week to week? Is life meaning day to day? Is life meaning year to year? Are you able to dictate in any meaningful way what your life looks like five years from now based off of what you do today? And maybe in your own mind or in your firm's mind, the sacrifice with your family or with your personal affiliations is for the next three months or through the end of this case or through the next year and a half, knowing that on the other side of that, it'll be easier or slower. And the question, is that legitimate? Is that true? Do we have any control over that beyond the next 45 minutes? Or is that a good way to think about it even? Yeah, I think from the older generation's perspective, and this is this may just be a permanent feature of human society that hasn't changed in thousands of years and never will. But I think from the older generation's perspective, there's this knock on millennials as being entitled and lazy, right? The idea that in that millennials, that they want all the money and the benefits and the perks and the lifestyle 
without any of the grind and the misery and the paying of dues and they, they want to be elevated and escalated without having with without the work ethic that supposedly the older generation exhibited and it's funny as you go through life a couple of things happen one is you get older the other is that all the generations get older like so millennials now are some of them are in their 40s i don't you're barely a millennial right. you're 28 but they're there's start they're millennials are no longer kids you know what i mean and so now gen z it's we're probably right about the time that we're going to start talking about how lazy and entitled gen z is the zoomers right? yeah. yeah yeah don't you think but i wonder and but that's one way of if i were to say that as a gen xer i and my cohort had more of an appreciation for the work-life balance than the people who came before me that's just on the other side of the coin of saying we were more entitled and lazy than the generation that came before me, right? So there's this aspect of it. It's not really wrong. It's just the way that you're looking, what you refer to as the lens through which you're observing this stuff. And I wonder though, if I'm going to venture a guess that you disagree with the negative stereotypes that are applied to your generation or, or am I wrong about that? You're right in that, yeah, from a personal perspective, I've always chuckled at that. Yeah. And again, it's not driven out of any inappropriate assumptions made about a group of people. I think you're always going to stereotype when you group that many people together. My own lived experience has just not been that. Yeah. And so I've always been like, that's really funny. You don't know me. And I mean, and legitimately, not in a dismissive way, but... And I have been fortunate in that I have been quick to dispel those when they've been lodged against me personally. But... To a large sense, I don't know that it is entirely untrue. I think there are consequences of what the real world or pick your reality TV show, right? Those things don't exist if there's not a cultural appetite for them. Those shows do incredibly well. So I think someone out there is consuming that stuff and relates to it in some kind of a way. And I don't know what those folks did to, to deserve that platform, for lack of a better phrase. But it's entertaining, yeah. Uh, and so there's some value there. But uh, no, I, I do disagree. I think it bears out in the things that our generation historically have gone through, right? Go back to, let's start with dot-com bubble. Right. Or even, I don't know, first, first Iraq invasion. Yeah. If you want to start from an adult millennial's perspective, maybe that's about the coming of age, if I'm doing the math right. So then as an adult, you're living through dot-com bubble, 9-11, financial crisis. I think they're pretty young for that, but I think what you're bringing up is actually really significant, which is macro factors, whether they're economic factors or world events type factors that shape our experience. And I think we're seeing that now. I think we are, we're coming out of a long run in this country with really low interest rates and healthcare costs and education costs outpacing the cost of other things, like becoming not just more expensive in absolute terms, but also relatively more expensive than they ever used to be, and housing. And so housing. It, it used to be the case that there is a whole generation that came along, and I maybe caught, I don't think I got the, the glory days of this, but I think I caught like the tail end of it for sure, is low rates. It used to be the case that 
college was very affordable <laughs> and housing was very affordable and healthcare was relatively affordable as well. All that stuff has increased in costs and interest rates are going up and all of that is related. But I think as a consequence of it, you have this whole generation of people who like think they're geniuses and they're really hardworking. You know what I mean? Just good timing. Yeah. Whereas in fact, like their path through life was just structurally a lot easier for these macro kind of reasons. Now, there's a lot of complexity there that, that some people were advantaged from that stuff in ways that other people and other types of people were not advantaged in, re- in relation to that stuff. But I do think that there is that people in general are they attribute their situation a lot more to their own essential qualities than to the frankly the environment in, in which they've lived. And I don't have the answer to this question, but a question that I've thought about in response to that is as millennials or even your generation become more entrenched in the legal profession from a leadership perspective, will those lived experiences and those macro inputs shape how they treat the younger generation differently? Or will the tradition of our industry hold strong? What's yeah, I'm really curious about that. I'm also curious about what the politics are going to look like because if you got, I don't know about your like even I, when I, I, I even I when I was your age was thinking there's no way I'm going to get Social Security. You know what I mean? That was 25 years ago, and I was thinking, and I'm thinking it's not going to be there. You know what I mean? I don't know what kids today are thinking, but I they got to be wondering. There's a joke we joke about this at work. Some of the younger guys talking to some of the senior guys on on payday. Glad to have my glad you're able to enjoy my social security contribution because we're not getting it. That's exactly what I'm saying. And I'm 22 years older than you are, and I'm thinking at that time I'm thinking I'm not going to get it. Now I'm thinking who knows? They can just I they can give me the dollars. It's just that the dollars aren't going to be worth anything. Right. That's going to be the problem. <laughs> and the the other joke of that, and you hit on this about housing. I think that's the most present point in my life currently. So that's why I think about it the most, but yeah. it is just crazy how relative spending power and cost of housing does not register with older generations until you have the conversation with them. And it, and I think it's genuinely an innocent conversation. I was at a bar event several months ago speaking with somebody an older attorney and I was explaining that yeah we just bought a house we're really excited but oh my gosh this is just crazy I feel like I got ripped off because how much I paid and it's all I guess you always feel that way but he was like yeah I don't understand what you're talking about like why do you feel that way congratulations great job we bought our first house back in whenever and it was a hundred and whatever thousand dollars and I'm sure you could sell it next week for two and a half million (laughs) it's just a totally and I think because they haven't been in the market for so long They've been removed from it. They hear about it. They don't relate it. So I think that's part of the generational divide is just a non-participation in that market. They assume the lived experience that they had is still the case without having to actually address it. Yeah. So I think it's an innocent an innocent misunderstanding mostly. Yeah, I guess that's the thing. When I came along, the idea of buying a house, it, buying a house was just an assumed thing that you had to do it was it was understood as being it was a signifier of adulthood in a way and it was it wasn't until the financial crisis around 0809 
that it ever even occurred to anybody that there are risks associated with owning a house. You know what I mean? That wasn't even, it was, there used to be a lot of conventional wisdom about like smart financial planning. And the idea that there was risk associated with home ownership was just not on the radar screen. And it was only around after 08, 09 that people started talking about, hey, actually, if you rent, you can move to take a job. Like that's nice. Whereas if you buy, you might get stuck with your house and you might, and your mobility might be, and your opportunity might be limited as a result of that. Or interest rates can change. Nobody knew anything about interest rate risk at that time. And so we, we've learned a lot of hard lessons. I don't know currently what the status is of home ownership as being like, you tell me, is this something everybody feels like they got to do? Or do you, does your generation collectively see it as out of reach? I think there are two answers to that. One is the millennials in the legal profession and then the millennials not in the legal profession. And I think there is still a pressure or expectation in the legal profession to, to do that. I think from a firm's perspective, it signifies a permanence. Stability. That yeah. is, that's still reflected. But that being said, it's just incredibly difficult. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not a reality for a lot of folks. And it's not because they don't want to or wouldn't want to, but I think the benefit of the hindsight of the of those risks that do in fact exist scares some folks away, and the nature of the market being what it is, some folks are just simply priced out. Right. Either the risk is too great, or the price is too high, or both, or some combination of both, and that's pe- keeping people away. So I think because of the de facto nature of it, it is not seen as a social pressure. It's a great, awesome, congrats if you do it. How'd you do that? Yeah. <laughs> but also, if you're not, no one's like, what's wrong with that guy? What about getting married and having kids? I don't think it's as much of a pressure. I think that's regionally, culturally driven as well, too. Interestingly enough, there are a lot... Of, I kind of have two tr- groups of friends. You have high school friends, college friends, whatever. A lot of my friends from back home, I'll say are married and are having kids. And I think in that demographic, it's seen as appropriate and totally normal. And then there are a lot of friends of mine who are, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to a baby shower next weekend. And they're like, you have friends that are having babies? So it's totally different to them. And I think it's just a, and that was one of the other things I had fumbled around with you was just the cultural divide that exists between rural urban, for lack of a better way to qualify it, is drives a lot of that decision. Yeah, that makes sense. And you, I'm sure what you've observed is you go through seasons in life. As you're growing up and you're in school, it's incredibly easy to know exactly where everybody is because like what grade you're in and you know what grade everybody else around you is in and you know where everybody is in relation to that. And then we get out of school it's a little more vague and variable, but there's wedding season of life where it seems like a lot of folks are getting married. And then this kid season of life, which usually begins shortly thereafter. And then you got a little, a little divorce bump. There'll be that little, that moment of time where you're like, Oh, that's my first friend who got divorced. And then you're all hop, skipping a jump from like a lot of other friends who got divorced. And then eventually you get to be my age where you start to have significant health problems and not far away at all from when like when people are starting to die that's where we are retirement i guess is in there somewhere people are deciding to move on or change careers and stuff like that i think it's a natural part of life and certainly to be expected but you are your folks are it sounds like for you it's there's a difference between the folks you grew up with and the folks that you went to school with 
Probably. I jokingly tell this story. We were we were sitting at lunch in law school one day. There's a table of maybe eight or nine of us, and they were going around the table, and it occurred to all of them, except for me, that this was the first public school they had been to. And so the background they were bringing into it was totally different. And it's a joke that the first public school they went to was law school. But, and that was a really a particular selection of the kids at Carolina Law at the time. So it wasn't like they all went to private school. But that is the joke is, okay, I'm not one of them at the time. And I certainly felt that way in some respects. And I, okay. So we had a little bit of a similar, I had a military background. It wasn't rural in the sense, like we, we went from military base to military base, but I went to Duke. And as you might imagine, I was completely surrounded by these extremely wealthy people. And I had never interacted with that world whatsoever at all, ever. And I had no idea. I saw these people, these kids just like me, driving cars that I couldn't believe, like way sweeter than any car that I've ever had now. (laughs) And, and kids from all over the world and kids from all over the country, certainly who had like beach houses and mountain houses and houses in Paris and Vail and all over the place and just completely different lifestyles from what I was used to. The way that just by, I guess the way it ended up for me was I just I fell into a group of people who were largely comprising like people that were like me. Folks, kids were on financial aid. Most of my friends were financial aid people and musicians because that was what I was into. Not entirely, but for the most part. And I recognize what you're talking about, at least in terms of moving, coming into a place that has certain cultural assumptions into a place that has different cultural assumptions and having to navigate that. And I wonder what that's been like for you. Interesting, difficult at times. I have long jokingly held myself out as a, as the redneck dirt lawyer. And only because in Raleigh that was, I was considered the who's this redneck type lawyer, but no, it's been good. There are certain cultural faux pas that I've tripped over just from an ignorance of them. And you hate that when it happens, but you learn from them. You got to tell me a story about that. One time, this was several years ago, I was invited to a gala and no one told me that it was a tux thing. So I did not show up in a tux. Gotcha. It was yeah. the sore thumb for the yeah. evening. Yeah. Which was a joke. It was at my expense. Yeah. No, um, I, I did almost the exact same thing. I went to a debutante <laughs> thing. I didn't know what a debutante <laughs> thing was. I wore a sweater <laughs> and every other person there was wearing a tie. Yeah. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And you learn quickly how to behave. And if you're a quick study, you learn quickly how to behave in those settings. But one of the things that I've tried really intentionally to hold on to is just where I came from. And not that there's any better, worse, comparative difference in the two, but just that it, it feels more genuine. And so the being able to bring who I am from a cultural and birthright perspective yeah. to to these halls, to the halls of white-collar America, yeah. suburbia, I think is a benefit, certainly for me, in that I feel a little more comfortable in my own shoes. But I think hopefully for other folks, too, in that they're going to rub shoulders with somebody that they may have not crossed in life. And if they get something out of that, great. I certainly try to. 
There's levels of all this stuff, right? If you feel like you may feel like a fish out of water when it comes to being, you know, coming from a rural place and trying to interact with people who have come from different backgrounds and stuff like that in terms of the prejudices and biases. I will tell you, there's a lot more rednecky lawyers out there than you are. I'm okay? sure. Yeah. Your accent is not especially strong and, and there are those who, who are, but at the same time, there. It just goes from there. There are, I've run into folks, including very recently, I ran into some lawyers who made some assumptions about me just by virtue of the fact that I'm from North Carolina. I work with a lot of lawyers from all around the country. And so I'll have meetings with lawyers from Seattle or Los Angeles or Chicago or New York or whatever. And sometimes like at the end of it, They'll tell me, like, I assumed some things about you. And I, frankly, I have, and I wonder if you're the same way. I, I have, I'm totally fine with people making assumptions on me based on what they think about me and then finding out <laughs> through dealing with me. I like it. I have a friend who's an extremely successful business guy in Durham, North Carolina guy. He's one of those guys, if you ask him what he does, his answer is he's an investor. And the reason he's an investor is because he's invested really well. <laughs> he just <laughs> invests. That's his job. He invests his own money. is his job. And he's been incredibly successful. He's incredibly wealthy. He doesn't live an elaborate lifestyle. He just enjoys the kind of the game just of it. Just likes chase. Yeah. And he is constantly doing these deals with these guys in New York. And he's, this doesn't happen anymore. But in his younger days, he'd come in there like, hey, how's it going? And like these guys would think that they were going to take advantage of him. And he loved it. He thought it was a competitive advantage <laughs> to him to be underestimated in these negotiations and i can see something to that yes i love it and i think there is a competitive advantage one story i'll share where i was found myself intentionally on the cusp was we had a deposition in this antitrust case and our client was a farmer who very much was a farmer not a wealthy farmer but a farmer had the samson county accent the drop the r's very slow draw Great guy, very smart, knew his business back and forth, but to the, to the average observer would not know this. Me being who I am, I had to convince him that I was one of him. He didn't believe it. And yeah. then, but we got there, great, had a great rapport. They had a deposition coming up. The firm that was doing the deposition, the plaintiff's firm, had a young associate doing the deposition as well, flew in from New York and was very, had the Long Island accent, and without making too many assumptions, had a very metrosexual disposition. And so here I am, suit tie, communicating with this attorney who, Long Island accent, and he has no idea sitting, we're about to do the deposition, sitting in the room is the Sampson County farmer. And I had, we had done some preparations for the deposition, and I said, only answer the standard questions. You know, only answer yes or no if you can, blah, 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 blah. And I just remember we get in there, the pace of the conversation from this attorney, miles, miles a minute, and then my client speaking very slowly, it immediately frustrated the attorney. And I was like, we're going to use this. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to work. We're four and a half hours into this deposition, and he's got nowhere because he's so angry because the guy wouldn't understand him. And it was just super, I walked away from that going, I could not have prepared to be culturally positioned between these two people, but I exactly was. <laughs> There was no way to set up life 
any other way. That's the flip side of this cultural competence and identity kind of question that we're talking about here, which is that sometimes you're the fish out of water, but sometimes you're the fish in water as a result of that. And I've had to reckon with that as a mediator myself, because there's a lot of conversation in the mediation world about identity and who's the right mediator for a particular case. And what about a person's background or characteristics, whether it's age, legal experience, but also race, sex, sexual orientation? Like, What do you as a human being bring into the process that makes you uniquely suitable for the case and the idea of certain folks being underrepresented and like maybe give them a shot. We're actually like trying to consciously set up mechanisms for lawyers to give a shot to people who nobody's given a shot to just out of, you know, and, but at the same time, as this sort of middle-aged white guy and not even as literally a (laughs) middle-aged white guy, I have this, I, it's, I try to be as open-minded and as progressive as I can, but at the same time, it, it doesn't feel great when the whole conversation is about how like you're, you've had it easy. You're not, you're not the right person for a lot of these cases. And I'm, I'm, I work hard to be as open as I can to all of that stuff. But then every now and then I'll find myself in a situation where it's clear that a middle-aged white guy is needed in that moment because you've got some old white guy who who's needs to be convinced right will we'll not listen otherwise to yeah it. exactly yeah. and that's a and that's hard it's a i think it's one of these things where it's like where you face the world and you look at the difference between the world as you wish it were and the world as it is and what do we do we live in this world and we have a job to do and the consequences of our work matters and there's there's and at the end of it all i think what i come down to is we try to nudge the world in the direction that we think it ought to go as best we can but eventually i think we all realize at some point that this stuff that we're living in existed before us and it's going to exist after us as well absolutely and i agree i try to take a more micro assessment of a situation where you may at surface level, be just a 50-year-old white guy, but what have you done with your 50 years that would make you uniquely qualified for this particular issue? And is a demographic, is an immutable characteristic part of that, or is there some characteristic experientially that makes you more qualified or less qualified? I think that's another... As we're discussing, sometimes it eases the way and it greases the skids and it makes the conversation easy, but sometimes... You just have to overcome that. I walk into rooms sometimes where the middle-aged white guy is not the person that the participants are have an instant affinity for. You know what I mean? And but like sometimes these lawyers from LA and Seattle and so on, it always ends up great. But you have to get there. And I think it takes a self-awareness on your part, to your credit, to to recognize that and work to overcome it. There's some credit deserved there, definitely. From a personal standpoint as 28 year old general counsel you made the move from litigation to in-house before the age of 30 it's a classic move it's not an it's not an uncommon move at all straight out of the textbook yeah but you've gone ahead with it and i wonder as you envision the future wait for yourself and how you feel about it i have always held myself out as entrepreneurial is the wrong word but experiential maybe And I think where I'm at now gives me a really great opportunity to do that. One of the things I got weirdly invested in college was this 
futures thinking and futurism more or less as an ism. And I've held on to that loosely, at least in spirit. And so I think being able to be challenged and have the opportunity to push the boundaries and experiment and enjoy and grow and build something from the legal perspective is something I'm really interested in. So I'm going to continue to chase that. I think would love to grow where I'm at with who I'm with and and see where that road leads me, I think. That's the only way to do it. Newt Thompson, thank you so much for being with me today on the Steve Dunn Podcast. Thanks, Steve.